I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. So thank you, Oscar, for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. You work a lot with people on deep listening. I was wondering if you have had someone recently in your life who has listened to you. The person that comes to mind is Matt. And I asked him for some help. And it was in a really low context environment. I sent Matt a message via text. I said, Matt, would you mind having a look at this and letting me know if this is helpful for you? And he said, I'd be delighted to do that, but what do you really want? It's this question. So you have to understand this is all over an SMS text message. And in that simple question, what do you really want? I felt Matt was open to hearing from me. Yeah, What I really want is probably to have a chat with you for half an hour about why I'm asking people for feedback rather than just publishing it. And he said, that's a better conversation for us to have. Again, it was over the telephone. It wasn't even face-to-face. And Matt just kept listening a little bit more deeper. He listened more deliberately probably to what wasn't said than what was said. And he spent a lot of time saying to me as I was talking through an old narrative, that's great, but I'd like to hear from Oscar. That simple question was uh, quite powerful for me and helped me be heard. And how did this help you in the end? What Matt ended up doing was not answering the question that was asked, but listening for something more fundamental that was a step change for me rather than a transactional response to a question that was posed. So it's opened up a greater freedom for me to be comfortable with the fact that I was interviewed on a national TV show about this topic only last week. And prior to that conversation, the dialogue in my head wasn't really effective or productive and it was probably not helping me show up at my best for those who are watching in the audience. So there's a great deal of lightness now in how I approach that topic than I did before. Before it was, I think of it as like a gravitational black hole in the universe that sucks everything out of it, including the light when you start to engage with it. Matt gave me the option to explore other galaxies, I guess. Yeah, I love what you're saying because his simple question helped you to reflect, okay, what is it that I really, really need, you know, besides just what I said at first, as well as to shift from this thing that I have to do and trying to force to something that's lighter and more something that's more genuine and authentic from you, which is probably why you also feel a lot lighter. And in the end, I'm sure that the interview was much better. Yeah, I mean, originally the TV interview, I was very fixated on what to say and how to say it. And the, that's what was going through my head two weeks before that. What went through my head as I stepped onto the set of the TV studio was I'm here to smile, I'm here to have fun. And I'm here to serve the audience. And it was more moving from doing to being. And a lot of people notice that 
energy who know me on the broadcast and kept saying things like you're a natural and you were so relaxed because what happened on the TV broadcast was quite ironic. I was put with a microphone and sat in a chair with two people to the left of me, two people to the right of me. After I was asked the first question and responded, the host cracked up laughing because my microphone wasn't working. And in that moment, I had a choice about which story to listen to. And I chose the story about have fun, enjoy it, serve the audience. And it wasn't going to serve the audience for me to melt down in the moment on my television debut to, to carry on and they cut back to the host. They asked a much longer question while a technician stuck his hand down my back and put in a substitute microphone, which flawlessly. And um, yeah, in that moment, I had a choice to be light and have fun. If I would have had that interview two weeks before, I'm sure it would have been a completely different outcome. All because Matt asked me the simple question, what do you really want? Yeah, what do you really want? And what's interesting is that in the end, what you just said, that you shifted from this doing to this being. And this being was about also having fun and enjoying the process. If you look back at the moment that this journey with deep listening started, what was the spark or the moment where that, where you took your first step or realized there was something more here? Well, they're kind of three big events that I look back to, not necessarily one big spark in my schooling days, I was part of a school with 23 nationalities, many migrants who'd arrived from war-torn parts of Eastern Europe and Asia, and also people fleeing fairly militaristic regimes in South America as well. So um, for fun, we played cards. Um, we played cards that were cards with English faces. We played cards with faces that were developed in Italy. We played cards in with Chinese cards. And for some reason, people wanted me on their team. And what I learned was I was really good at listening to what people weren't saying. Most of these card games were played in pairs. So two people playing against two people. So there was some strategy. People sat diagonally across from each other. So they'd have to signal without making the signals obvious. And I was able to pick up on that, but it was also a connector at the school. I was a connector between the native Australian-born people and the migrants. I was a connector between the sporty types and the academics. I was a connector between the people who love the arts and the theatre and the people who love science. I was a connector between the teachers and the students. And only looking back in hindsight, it was my ability to listen across context, which was helpful. So that was the first time looking back, I noticed that listening was very dominant in my life. The second time was when I was in a corporate role. I was a marketing director for Microsoft for quite a while. And I was a, on a university recruitment day at a university and people were just walking past the Microsoft stand, going to consulting companies, going to banks, going to insurance companies, and I was curious why people weren't really coming to Microsoft. So I decided to just step into the flow of the people walking by and ask people a couple of questions. And most people thought Microsoft was a company that developed software as opposed to a company that also recruited people in marketing, in sales, in operations, in contact centers people in finance, people in legal, people in human resources. And they were quite surprised that Microsoft had those kinds of roles. But in that moment and in listening to those potential graduates, I realized that graduate program was broken. I went back to the office and spoke to our managing director and said, I'm going to put a business case together in the next uh, leadership team meeting for the graduate program, which is fundamentally broken. So I went and listened to the current graduates I went and listened to graduates who were offered roles at Microsoft but didn't accept it and graduates who had left Microsoft to possibly join the competition or change to different industries. And in doing so, I was able to form a, a relatively rounded view of what was required. But rather than putting that business case up myself, I asked the graduates to do that with my help. 
and I gave them a voice at that table. That program that we changed ended up becoming deployed in 26 Microsoft countries around the world and our first time offer acceptance and the number of days outstanding was the best in the world as a result of the implementation of this program. And this program only came about because we listened to graduates. We listened to people who left the organization and we listened uh, to people who might have changed industries. So that was the next time I noticed listening was quite prevalent. But it wasn't until about four, four years ago now that somebody quite influential in the Australian marketplace and uh, ironically, an expert in speaking said to me, you know, Oscar, there are two types of experts in the world. There are those who are experts on a message, why fitness matters, uh, the neuroscience of high performance. And there are people who are experts on processes such as speaking or listening. If you could only codify what you know about listening, you could change the world. Come back to me in a couple of weeks. Let me know what you think about that. So I went back and I said to them, I agree, I need to codify what I know about listening, but I've set myself a goal. And my goal is by 2030 to teach 10 million listeners in the world because 55% of our day is spent listening. Only 2% of us actually know how. And he said to me, do you think you can achieve that goal by 2030? I said, yeah, I can see it. It's really possible. And he said to me, then make it 100 million and get uncomfortable. So that's the new target. By 2030, 100 million people in the world will know what it is to receive some kind of training in listening. My most significant long-term impact will be having teachers who are training in universities and places of higher education taught both how to listen and how to teach listening in schools, whether they're tertiary institutions or secondary institutions or primary institutions. We, we won't make a dent in the world unless this is taught through schools. This last example that you gave was kind of the, how should I say that? It's like the listing's always been there, more of as a quiet partner. And all of a sudden now it's there as a full, full head-on partner in <laughs> your work together. 85% of people think they're above average car drivers. 82% of people think they're above average listeners. And we know both statistics can definitely not be right. And um, particular hat tip or shout out to Graham Bodie from uh, the University of Missouri for those statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Graham. <laughs> it's so interesting how, you know, we, we assume we're better at it than what we are. And we notice when other people are not good at it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's often what happens. And it seems like people have a certain understanding of what listening is. I think that this understanding is more of this transactional kind of listening and more scratching only the surface of what really listening that can have a much deeper impact, a much more powerful impact. And even what you were talking about, this thing about connecting also across uh, groups, across context, maybe even across ideas to be able to have not only more creative and maybe more effective solutions, but where people feel good while they're doing it and they feel they're enjoying the process with each other. Even if it's not always that easy, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it helps them enjoy the process a lot more. I mean, I've literally walked out of a two-hour workshop with some leaders in a professional services firm today and they close the meeting out by going, I didn't realize my head could hurt this much. And yet it feels so good. It's like, it's like exercise. <laughs> yeah. And I think just like the gym, it's, it's not a place, it's a practice. And I always say to people when I, you know, people come up to me after I speak on stage and they come up to me and they always, it's roughly the same conversation. I have a friend they're a really bad listener. Blah, blah, blah. What advice would you give me to tell them about how to improve their listening? And I always say, just be a great listening role model to them. They'll learn more from what you do rather than what you say. And they all kind of take a step back and go, no, no, I really want a tip for them. 
And I said, if you think you're an expert listener, I'll be delighted to give you a tip. But I think the biggest tip is let them watch you in action. Let them see you be completely present in the dialogue. Let them see the fact that you switch off your phone and tell them that you're switching off your phone before the conversation started. Let them see how you're maintaining amazing eye contact. Let them see how you're breathing deeply to get oxygen to the brain for this very difficult cognitive task you're undertaking. And you can see them going through a mental checklist going, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. And they walk away going, yeah, you're right. I need to role model listening better to them. Intuitively, we know when people don't listen to us, yet we have no frame of reference, no palette to play with, no syntax of dialogue of what the difference between a good and a great listener is. And I always say to the people that I train or work with one-on-one or in, in speeches, the difference between a good listener and a great listener is simply the fact that they notice they're distracted sooner. Forget the tips, the tricks and techniques. If you can notice you're being distracted, because the 125-400 rule will say they speak at 125 words a minute. You can listen it up to 400, so your brain's going to fill in the gap. Just become really good at noticing when you're distracted. That's the difference between a good and a great listener. And that takes a lifetime of practice. That, that simple statement is something I struggle with every single day. Yes, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> There's times where we do it well and times that we don't. And there's people we do it well with and there's people that we don't. And becoming more aware of that. The other day I was teaching a class and the conversation that came up in that class and what really, or the message or the thing that people, it really hit people is, oh, listening's a choice. I can choose. <laughs> and there may be some times where you, it's, you know, that if you choose not to, that you're conscious of that choice too, and that it may have impacts or effects. You know, on the on the situation, that awareness of when you're distracted is also a choice. There are some situations where they were feeling, you know, drained by the by listening, and then the question is, what do I do then? Do I have to listen all the time, 100? percent And you know, I don't think it's possible to listen 100 percent on all the time. We need also to give our brains breaks, and we also need time for people to listen to us. There's a lot of other aspects in there, but to know that that often it's more important that when we catch ourselves being distracted and pull ourselves back and are very present for other people, that a lot of times that exchange with that person actually might be more effective in a shorter period of time. Yeah. And I think a lot of leaders that I work with get trapped wanting to explore the content more. And yet the most powerful question they could ask is what would be the most productive way for us to spend the balance of our time together? And you can ask that question at the 10-minute mark of a one-hour meeting or the 20-minute mark or even at the 50-minute mark. A good colleague of mine, Donna McGeorge, has just finished writing an amazing book, The 25-Minute Meeting, How to Double Your Impact in Half the Time. And there is a point at which the meeting and the amount of time you set aside there comes a point where it does become unproductive. There is a point where you listen too much and it's not effective either for you, the speaker, or the dialogue. But we don't ask enough process questions. We ask a lot of questions around the content. So that simple process question, which is really around time and outcome, and where, where the progressive listener kind of comes up really strong is, what would be the most effective way to use the balance of our time? Yeah, that's a really great question. This past Friday, I was um, talking to a high performance person who's working for a very big company. She was 30 years old. And she was talking about how a lot of her friends are leaving the companies and the leaders, uh, the older leaders just don't get it that it's not just about the money. And, you know, I asked her, so what do you think is the real reason why your friends are leaving these companies? She paused, thought about it, and she said, it's because they're not being listened to. I'll offer a hypothesis that the leaders in that organization aren't discriminating based on age. I'm sure if you ran a survey across each decade of the workforce in there, there's probably a similar turnover. Because if a leader's not listening to 
a particular generational group, they are likely not listening to their employees. The number one reason why people leave companies is their leader, not the company. People leave their managers. They don't leave the organization. And the research is very solid across decades, across continents, across industries on that one. So I don't feel in this case that this system is singling out the younger generations for not listening. I think they don't have a systemic way of hearing not only what's being said, but being very deliberate about listening to what's unsaid as well. You know, for me, I'm really passionate about multi-generational leadership because I feel that that's the contract between the current generation and the future generation to help them become effective leaders. But for me, I have a, a mentor. He's 23, he's half my age, and he mentors me around a, a lot of technology that's emerging. He mentors me in new ways of working in the gig economy. So I think skillful leaders are deliberate about how they listen, but I don't think in this case that this employee may want to be a little bit more curious and understand whether that's an issue only for their generation or that others in the company have a similar issue with the fact that they may not be listened to. I think, I think we all have choices. Um, we can choose to be the victim, or we can choose to be the player in this context. The victim sits back, they blame others, they get frustrated, they point fingers, or they can choose to be a player and take responsibility. And responsibility is two-dimensional. Responsibility is about you taking accountability for the, your own change, but it's also about response ability. So it's your ability to respond to that and having the ability to be choiceful in that. And for those people who are saying, oh, they're not listening to me, or maybe if that's what they feel like, um, what would you say to them that would help them help perhaps their voice be heard? The curious question may well be, if that leader, if that leader, the 30-year-old leader was in front of me right now, I wouldn't necessarily explore what they think that the leadership isn't listening to them, maybe I'd get them to explore what they're not listening to from those leaders and take it a step further. All organizations have stakeholders and customers ultimately. If I was to offer an approach that that leader might want to explore, how can they listen to their marketplace and then bring that to the leader? I think in that context, the listening becomes more truthful because the truth is in the customer, the market, the competitor, the stakeholders, the voters, whatever that externality is. I think it would help our 30-year-old leader to orientate themselves around those that the organization serves, bring that conversation to the leader which will get them to listen because it's not about the 30-year-old not being heard. It's about the customers, the stakeholders not being heard. And I think playing on that landscape will help the dialogue change dramatically, not so much about whether we're heard or whether we're not, but what can we do to transform our organization to serve those we're meant to serve? Because typically the orientation of I'm not being listened to by my boss is a very internal one, internal to the organization, but it's also about the self-talk and narrative that that person's come to bring to the conversation. So if they were in the room, I'd ask them, what's the biggest change we need to bring about for those we serve? Let's call them customers. And have you brought that to the leader? Because I think they would listen to you in that context. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And th I'm just curious, um, in your model of listening, where would you fit this conversation? Does this fit in the context area? Yeah, so in the context of this conversation, it spans context and unsaid. So the unsaid is what we're not hearing from the externalities around the customers, but that creates a context to have the dialogue not be about the fact you're not being heard 
but the fact we're not listening to our customers. So context asks us the question, if we were to go 10 years into the future or 100 years into the future, what will be different? If our customers were in the room, what difference would we be having in this conversation? You see, context is the edge of the jigsaw puzzle that we need to lay out so we can quickly fill in the gaps. And in this sense, I feel the wrong jigsaw puzzle pieces are being put down and we're just flipping pieces saying they're not listening to me. Well, if we were a player and we were response-able and we were proactive and we were externally focused, maybe we'd explore that with customers, maybe we'd explore that with head office. If they were a head office, maybe they'd explore it with a subsidiary. It's really stretching people out of their current context to imagine a situation where they're actually observing themselves rather than being in the dialogue. They need to watch themselves from a third position. So typically the most potent third position is always the externality of the outside the organization. In Australia right now, as an example, we have a very detailed intervention by a commission of inquiry into the financial services industry and it has completely transformed the dialogue around the power that banks have enjoyed in the past in this market to now the power dynamics have been flipped because those who were never given a voice with complaints are now appearing before a commission of inquiry and that is completely changing the context for the banks and their power base is very different now as a result. So externality is always a function of the context or level three listening. And in this context, because listening is about action, so it's clear from this commission of inquiry that there was no shortage of complaints being logged. They, they were detailed. There were documents produced to the commission for each of these banks and insurance companies and for fund managers where complaints were documented. The institutions themselves had systems and processes to capture these complaints, but systemically they were being ignored. Reinforces the point that listening is about action, it's not about hearing. And too many people think that it's only about hearing alone. To be heard, we need change. We need to see change, whether that's an acknowledgement, I've heard you, I understand what you've said, to taking action on that because that's what brings the fifth level into play where you bring meaning into the conversation because people understand not only that they've been heard, but you're taking action, which means you've heard them at a deeper level, what they actually mean. We have a beautiful example of that for those of you who don't follow tennis. I'll give you a bit of context and background. Serena Williams in the US Open was one Grand Slam win away from being the greatest women's tennis player of all time. She would break a 45-year-old record by Margaret Court if she was successful in playing a Japanese debutante. She was called for a code violation, which in simple terms I think just means you broke the rules. And the rule that Serena was told that she broke was she was being coached. Now, it's an unspoken rule that you're not supposed to be coached. The reality is they all get coaching. That's why people sit in the coach's box. Serena wanted to understand from the chair umpire what had happened because what had happened was Serena had seen her coach give her a thumbs up. What she hadn't seen was when her back was turned just slightly immediately prior to that, her coach later explained in an interview that he was in fact coaching her. So she went to the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos, and said, what's the code violation for? And he explained that you're being coached. And she went there with an intention to understand where he was coming from, to listen, even though she disagreed. But what quickly came up for Serena and why she'd been triggered, she'd had a sequence of many US Opens where she'd been treated probably in a way that wasn't fair or wasn't held to the same standard as her male counterparts. So Serena ended up saying to the chair umpire, 
all I want you to do is know that I'm not a cheat. That's what it meant to Serena. She was happy to cop the point penalty. Two matches later, she lost a game to an unforced error. And as a result of that, the game became closer, but her frustration balled to the surface. She smashed her racket into the ground, broke it, and received another code violation, which in this case meant that she would lose the first point of the next match. In her frustration, she didn't realize this. She went and sat down at the break, and then the chair umpire called the score out at 15 love prior to the Japanese person serving. Well, that triggered Serena even more. She walked up to the chair, asked for an explanation, and again reinforced the fact that she's not a cheat. And she said, you don't hold men to the same standard that you've just held me. So equity mattered to her. And all she wanted to be heard was not the fact that she slammed a racket. She wanted a moment where the chair umpire would acknowledge that she wasn't a cheat, but he decided to play the rule book. And as a result, Serena ended up losing the match, the championship that would get her to the greatest of all time mathematically. And because the chair umpire wasn't listening to what Serena meant, but listening to her content, we had a huge furor and controversy that will continue on. This will change the way women's tennis is viewed. It will change the way women's tennis is umpired. It will change the way men's tennis is umpired as well. And this all came about because the chair umpire wasn't listening to what Serena meant, rather listening to the words coming out of her mouth about some point in a tennis match. So very few of us take the time to listen down right down at that level what does it mean to the other person because we can't understand their meaning only they can make their own meaning from that i think too many of us spend time as a chair umpire in a conversation and not down on the court in dialogue i love that example it's a beautiful example and so if you were the chair and she would have come up to you the first time what could have been a response well, there were many choices the umpire had at that point. For those who don't watch tennis, the chair umpire is in a chair approximately six feet above the ground. There is an implied power dynamic by the physical position of the chair umpire. Now, this was a tense match. Serena's the hometown hero. And in that moment, the chair umpire could have easily diffused the situation. And the simplest thing he could have done was come out of his chair and made his eye contact at eye level with Serena rather than looking down. Whether we know it or not, the only time we've ever been looked down on is when our parents have been scolding us for something from our childhood. And whether we're conscious of it or not, the likelihood that we're triggered into some kind of childhood memory where somebody's standing above us and dictating rules is pretty high that this is going to happen. So the simplest choice he had was to listen to Serena at her level. I think that would have diffused most of the tension in the dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how something so simple can make all the difference in the world. You know, there's a reason for millennia humans have been sustained by sitting in circles around campfires. And although we can't put fires inside the workplace, literally, we can do it metaphorically by inspiring people. But we're not going to do it if people are sitting across big, expansive tables that are blocking the barrier to connections between humans. Uh, leaders in workplaces need to be choiceful about the physical location they choose to have the conversation, as well as the timing of it as well. So I think those practical things, we try and make listening sometimes too, I'm not sure if this will translate, I call it sophisticated. We speak in kind of corporate ease and MBA-ish kind of languages where we would never talk to somebody like that over a dinner at home in a, in a pub or a diner. We, we should always approach the conversations to be as human, as simple linguistically as possible because then the barriers to communication, you've chipped away at one more thing 
because if there's syntax or jargon that people don't understand, again, you create an implied power dynamic between those that know the jargon and those that don't. I'm quite famous for calling out regularly in meetings, sorry, I don't understand what that acronym was. Could you explain it to me? Oh, forgive me. I'm sure everybody in this room and the people who nod when I say that question are the people who don't understand the acronyms. So we just have to be conscious to simplify our language as well as our physical environments to create a listening environment that's effective. You know, I think it's this idea of how do we in, how do we support listening more in organizations. Think about some other ways that leaders or executives could integrate uh, some listening structures or systems in place to support listening to happen more. Do you have any suggestions there? Some of my favorite phrases come from leaders I've witnessed or worked with. And one of my favorite ones is, the truth is always out there. And the out there they were referring to is always around what's external to the organization. As fascinating and as helpful as it might be for leaders to listen to their employees, it's more powerful for the employees if the leaders listen to their customers, their suppliers, and their regulators. Because quite often the things that the employees are trying to say and not being heard are the exact same things a customer focus group will say, a regulator will say, a group of suppliers, and possibly even competitors will say. But because they've been said externally, the leaders then bring that back into the organization. And in most cases, there's a sigh of relief from employees. They go, well, you've just heard what I've been telling you for the last six months, 12 months, 24 months. So I think for a lot of leaders, being deliberate about being external is the most important thing that they can do from a listening perspective. And good leaders probably allocate about a third of their time that's discretionary externally. The great leaders do about half of their time externally to listen to the marketplace. You see, for me, the scars on my back are quite big because I know the Microsoft employees when I was working there provided enormous detailed and thoughtful feedback about the importance of the launch of the iPhone. And we were laughed at. We were laughed at by head office. We were laughed at by the regional office. And the phrase was virtually identical. Who's going to buy a $1,000 phone? But what we realized is that computing platform of the future wasn't fixed to a desktop. It wasn't even fixed to a keyboard. It wasn't even fixed to a business model where you sold software. And in not listening to the employees and the customers and the competitors in the marketplace, that organization is now the most valuable in the world. There's been over a hundred billion iPhone sold since that time. So not listening has some huge commercial consequences. Leaders spend at least half discretionary time out there listening to the customers and validating that and then go back again. If it takes 90 days, go back in 90 days. If it takes a year, go back in a year and tell the customers what you've actually done and then they'll feel heard. They'll trust you more and they'll provide even more feedback to accelerate the pace of growth in your business. Can you briefly take us through your listening model and how that would work using that example? I think we might go way back to the beginning and just explain the five levels of listening. I don't think we've done that so far. <laughs> uh, level one, listen to yourself. Level two, listen to the content. Level three, listen to the context. Level four, listen to what's unsaid. And then level five, listen, listen for the meaning. So in this example, listening to yourself, Microsoft had effectively created a mobile phone starting from the origin of a computer and then putting that into a phone. They were listening to themselves in that case. They were working on what was best in their history and they listened to themselves to create a phone that somehow resembled a desktop computer. Despite multiple versions of that phone being in market 
nearly a decade before the iPhone launched, never really exciting enough for software developers to write applications for those phones. The first thing Microsoft needed to do was really listen to their own market research, which was telling them that this form factor was a hybrid. It wasn't designed from the ground up as a mobile device. The content that they were listening to was content about how to improve their phone in the current view. So how do we improve this phone as opposed to asking a really interesting question to the focus group? If we were to design our phone from scratch, what would we take out and what would we add in? Exploring the user's context and the scenarios that they wanted the phone to be used in, they would have discovered really quickly that the most potent app on the phone was not email, but in fact photos. And photos made the phone ubiquitous and made you want to carry it everywhere. But because they weren't listening for that kind of context, what was in a user's day became really, really important. There's a podcast episode where I interview the head of market research for Coca-Cola and Nike in Asia Pacific. She talks about the fact that most market research is really good at stopping doors because it's so heavy and nobody reads it. And yet all you need to do is just go and spend a day or two with your customers and walk around with them and you'll see the context in which they operate and where they don't. But in this example here, it's what was unsaid. They weren't asking questions to the subsidiary organizations. They weren't asking questions to the reseller organizations. They weren't asking questions to customers, potential customers and users of competitive mobile phones, what would they like and what would they like to change? Those questions weren't being asked. They were trying to perfect a form factor that was relevant a decade before, but not designed from the ground up as the iPhone was. And ultimately, what they weren't listening for is, is meaning. The meaning of the mobile phone wasn't about a great device to do email better. It wasn't about a device that can allow you to read an Excel spreadsheet better which was the predominant narrative from Microsoft at the time. They wanted a remote control for their life. They wanted a device that would make their life easier to capture their memories, to record what mattered to them, and to become an assistant in their future to make their life easier. And that's what Siri is today. But it took imagination, it took a blank piece of paper for... Apple to reimagine what that possibility was and realize that the meaning of a mobile phone had nothing to do with it being a phone and had everything to do with it being mobile. If you were listening uh, for the meaning of I want a remote control, I want a personal assistant for the rest of my life, that's where Apple nailed it. That's really great. You know, I love how your model, you can apply it to an individual in an individual situation as well as into the context of organizations. And so to see how those different um, levels work, really great. If you were to um, leave one thing with leaders and we'll say multi-generational leaders, what would you like them to take with them today? There's an amazing story of a church built in the Midlands of England in the 1600s. And the elders of the community got together. They planted five oak trees. And people asked, why have you planted all these oak trees? They said, in 100 years and in 200 years and in 300 years, the roof on this church will need repairing. We're planting trees now so they don't have to in the future. So the question for all leaders out there, whatever generation they're from, are you building churches or are you building churches and planting trees? What would you say to people who would like to integrate listening into the work that they're already doing? I think this is going to sound frightfully practical, but I think there's a hierarchy of listening modalities. So if we start with an SMS text message, move our way up to email, move our way up to telephone call, move our way up to video call, move our way up to face-to-face -to -face conversation. The question I always pose to people is, is the modality with which you're dialoguing through 
effective for creating deep listening and always ask yourself the question, no matter where you are on that journey of SMS message, email message, video, uh, phone message, video message, or face-to-face, move up a level. Ask yourself the question, is this the right time? And if it's not, let's move the modality up. The higher the context, the more effective the dialogue. So I think for a lot of us, we look for the fast answer, which often means we have to repeat ourselves through another modality of email. Many meetings take place where people send emails after meetings because they didn't feel they were heard, and yet that becomes counterproductive. The most potent thing to do is have the dialogue during the discussion face to face. We'll have you know quite a few listeners here are who are starting young people starting their own companies. If they can already start to see how they integrate listening right from the very first brick they're building, what would you say would be first couple of really nice bricks for them to build? The truth is in your customers. And for a lot of startups, they may not even know who their customers are in the beginning. So make sure you know what problem you're solving for your customer and you're only going to find that out by testing your hypothesis. It's great to build an app that nobody wants and get frustrated about that. But spend time with the customers, not listening to what they say, but asking them how this is connected to other processes in their business. So if you're in a software company that's selling into a business-to-business scenario, you want to understand this is going to solve a problem for that organization, what other systems does that need to plug into? Because you might find that that's not important to them or it is important to them in their total systemic workflow. If it's an individual who's using this application, ask them where this fits in their day and what does it remove from the friction or the barriers of how they do things. So I think too much time is spent by startups prototyping software where they really all they need to do is prototype some sticky colored 3m notepads on a wall with a customer you don't have to write a line of code to test whether you've got product market fit Uh, don't be so arrogant to think you know what the customers want from the next versions but recruit the customers into voting for feature requests so that you're hearing the voice of all the customers, not just the ones you like or the ones that are most vocal, vocal, but in fact, all the customers. So simple tools like uh, SurveyMonkey can help you really quickly get a temperature check for where your next set of features need to be. So particularly when you're starting up, listening's everywhere. And how would you advise them also in their internal processes? I'd simply say that most internal processes are rarely informed by customer feedback. So ask your customers to review your own internal processes as well. You might be shocked to realize they don't value some of your processes as much as you do. And ultimately, you might have a finance person driving process That's handy, but it's only going to be valuable if the customer ultimately values it. So one of the questions I'd always ask is, have you tested these processes with customers? The answer is really yes. We we were working with an organization that was getting employee feedback about processes that were counterproductive. And the leadership team was at an offsite with me, and they'd called this out as one of the things I wanted to break through in the workshop. They were probably halfway through their allocated time. And I simply said, there's one group you haven't actually asked about these processes. I'm curious which group you haven't asked. And they kind of scratched their head and, no, we've gone through all the internal teams. And I said, oh, I didn't define it by your organizational boundary. Who else could you ask? And it was somebody from finance who said, the customer and you could hear a pin drop in the room because in that moment they realized that yes they did need to recruit the customer in the exercise now one o'clock forward six months three processes they thought were absolutely critical for the customer's regulatory requirements was proven to be false And a lot of us are scared to, oh, if I showed my customer 
inside my organization, they might leave us because we're not as perfect as we need to be. Don't worry, your customer has processes that are messed up too. And all you'll show them is you're human and that you're relatable and that you're helping them out and you want to create processes that help them. Quite often times, the customers are amazing at simplifying the process completely for us. Yeah, and I love the fact that by doing that, they ended up finding more space and time to focus energy on what was really important. I think the bit I didn't say, that was the obvious one. What resulted from that customer becoming an even bigger fan and saying to their peers, why I love this organization is they're honest with me. They let me audit their process. And this person effectively became an unpaid salesperson for an organization that was in not necessarily startup mode, but probably in growth mode. And, you know, finding great salespeople is hard and getting a referral business is even harder. But for that client to become an unofficial cheerleader for that business through the simple process of bringing them inside and saying, we trust you enough to know that your opinion matters to our business and we'll make changes, basically made them their best unpaid salesperson. And this is also thinking about also the long-term relationship with their customer and, and that we're in this together to make things work. Two years ago, my dad had a stroke and we had amazing nurses working with us. That was so proactive and I was trying to understand why it was such an amazing experience for my dad who's left-handed and lost the use of his hand. But any conversation they wanted to have, they always made sure I was there with my dad when they explained a change. Now, they easily could have rang me up and ticked off their procedure manual. But these were amazing listeners, these nurses, both male and female, both young and old, that obviously been taught that it's better to wait for the whole family to be around because you recruit them in the journey of change and sustainability as somebody who's recovering from a stroke. Only three months later, when my mum was going into hospital for something very procedural, nothing as significant as a stroke, completely different experience. We were treated as a number. We only received communication as an email and it was a completely disempowering experience for my mum, for me and the extended family around us. So if you want to create a listening environment, just look up and say, is this the most effective way to have the dialogue? And I think that's the power of if you help people listen to themselves, they bring about their own change so much faster. Oscar, if people are going to find you, where should they find you? I think the simplest way to find me is just type Oscar Trimboli into your favorite search engine and that'll find me. Thank you so much for your stories and for your wisdom and for everything that you're doing to bring more listening out into the world. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Raquel Arp from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with others for more practical and inspiring stories and examples so that we can catalyze a listening movement together. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.